Hey, it's really good to see everyone here tonight. Would you do me a favor and turn to John chapter 1? That's in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible there. We're going to be looking in John chapter 1 here in just a moment. I want to ask you a question. What makes a church a good church? Okay, we live in DFW, and I've heard the term more than once that we are church shopping. Have you heard of this term before? By good, well-meaning people that are just legit going to find them a nice church. Not unlike you go to stores to find you a nice pair of shoes. You want to find one that fits, that is attractive, that is comfortable. So imagine that you are shopping for a church. I hope you're not. That's why I'm glad to see you here at the Neighborhood Church. But what are the things that you think make a good church? Let me hear you. Okay, that is a very excellent thing. Acts of service, okay? Friendly, smiling people. Well, you've all come to the right place, I think. Let's imagine that we're not asking you lovely people. We're asking the person on the street. What do you think people are looking for then in a good church? Answers, that is a great. Acceptance, these are all wonderful things. Tolerance, that's good. What about even the stuff the church does? Let's get real, real. People probably are looking at preaching, right? Can I listen to this guy for, if I'm Catholic, 12 minutes? If I'm on the charismatic spectrum, maybe an hour or more? And if I'm at the neighborhood church, hopefully 35 or 40 minutes? Okay, what about worship? Yeah, or programs? So we can talk about the things that we are or the stuff that we do, but what makes a good church good? Well, let's see what Mr. Neil Cole says. He wrote a book called Search and Rescue, Becoming a Disciple, and he says this. Ultimately, each church will be evaluated by only one thing, It's disciples. Your church is only as good as its disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumerist, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. Your church is not good. Because, as he says, a church is only as good as its disciples. And I think he's right. And the things that you guys were saying about being loving and finding hospitality and acceptance and all of these good things, that has everything to do with being a person that looks like Jesus. As John said, that loves like Jesus. So you can put on the greatest show on earth. But ultimately, if the people that are sitting out here in the gathered community of a church are not loving and looking and serving like Jesus, is it really a good church? They may do good things that attract and help people. But really, at the end of the day, are our churches designed to be purveyors of religious goods and services? Or are churches supposed to be greenhouses that grow people 
into Jesus looking and Jesus serving and Jesus loving people that go out and make more Jesus loving and Jesus serving and Jesus looking people. Because our churches ought look more like a greenhouse for disciples than just a store providing goods and services. So if a church is only as good as its disciples, what is a disciple? We would say in this church, someone who commits to being with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. Does that sound familiar? That would be the wording borrowed from our friend Dallas Willard that we put into our first core practice, which we talked about two weeks ago, and that is follow Jesus. Last week, we talked about our second core practice, which is to love our neighbor. We had a wonderful opportunity to put feet on the street today at our neighborhood clothes closet. We were able to be present to our neighbors, to be kind to them, to pray with them, to laugh with them, to speak with them, to see them just as we looked last week. Jesus saw Zacchaeus when nobody else wanted to. But ultimately, everything we try to do, clothes closet, worship, praise, all kind of boils down to our third core practice, which is grow disciples. Grow disciples. So it's somebody who's committing to being with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. You might want to think of an apprentice to Jesus. So we want to commit this year to invite people into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing, teaching, and sending them on mission. That's what we mean when we're talking about our core practice to grow disciples. That language that you're reading there on the screen might sound familiar to you, and Lord willing, we're going to see where we get that language here in just a moment after reading John 1 and a few other passages. But we chose that word grow intentionally because I think when we hear the word grow, you think of what we just sang about, something that's being made from the dust, something that takes time, Something that needs to be cultivated. And it's almost always in the New Testament cultivated in relationship. No, 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 let me rephrase that. It's always cultivated in relationship. It's always starting with the relationship to God, but then it's demonstrated in relationship with others. So tonight we're going to look at Jesus' process of making disciples, of making apprentices. And then we're going to see what we can learn as a church through his process to go and grow disciples as well. Because Dallas Willard asked these two questions. The two most important questions every church ought to ask are these. What is our process of making disciples? And then the second question, which is just as vital, okay, does it work? So I'm going to look at Jesus' rhythm and process, and then we're going to see how it worked, quote-unquote, on through the first generation of the church, okay? So I'll rephrase those two Dallas Willard questions into these questions, right? How did Jesus and his disciples grow disciples? And then what was their process? Are you with me? So tonight's going to be a little bit different. I want you there in John chapter 1. We're going to read this. Jesus calling his first disciples, according to John. 
And then we're going to follow that process through the first generation of the church. You with me? Let's look at John chapter 1, and then let's talk for a few minutes about what we mean and how we can take this process as we grow disciples. You good? John chapter 1 says, The next day, John, this would be John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. Okay, so first you got to know that old John the Baptist, he had him some apprentices learning to do and baptize and eat bugs or whatever John was doing. They were being with John to learn from John how to live like John. You with me? So then John the Baptist sees Jesus passing by and he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. <laughs> now this might really stink for John the Baptist. You have two of your homeboys here. And he says, look, there's Jesus. They say, oh, sweet. See you, dude. We're going to go be with Jesus. But here's the trick. If these two disciples were being with John the Baptist to learn from John the Baptist how to live like John the Baptist, John the Baptist's whole ministry, we see at the beginning of this chapter, is to point to Jesus and say, the one that's coming after me is the one you should really care about. I can't even tie this dude's sandals. I'm not even worthy. Y'all got to keep your eye out for this guy. So ultimately, these two disciples of John were the best disciples of John because they were doing what John wanted them to do, and that is go look at Jesus. Are you with me? So these are two pretty top-notch disciples, and they move from John the Baptist to Jesus. So they're following, literally following in the footsteps of Jesus. And I love this. Jesus, some of the first words recorded in John's gospel is a question. And Jesus says, what do you want? And I don't read this as, what do you want? I read this as, I wonder what's in your heart and what you're looking for. Someone said they're looking for answers. I wonder what kind of answers you think you're going to find by following me. So they respond to Jesus' question. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you will see. Now, I love this because Jesus doesn't just tell him, I'm staying at the Holiday Inn on Highway 80. He is basically responding to their desire to find some answer and some life beyond themselves by saying, I'm not just going to tell you. I'm going to show you in the context of the relationship that it's going to take to walk together and to go on a journey together and then wind up in the same place together. And then you see as the story continues this. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. So they're spending time now with Jesus. They're not just looking for the easy answer. They're looking for the answer that is found in the relationship of this person that they've chosen to follow and give their time and energy to be with. Verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two 
who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So now watch this. We've got a name of one of these two disciples. And his name is Andrew. And he was with the one disciple that was with John the Baptist. So then they're sitting there having spent a lovely day with Jesus. And Andrew, the first thing he did was to go and find his brother, Simon. So all of a sudden, Andrew's so hyped up that they are now following this guy, Jesus, that he goes and finds his brother, Simon. Okay? So what you have then is a follower trying to go find another follower and recruit for Jesus. Are you with me so far? Easy enough. And they tell Simon, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, we've been introduced to three words that they call Jesus. Do you see what these words are in this text? The first one was rabbi. And what does that mean? Teacher, okay? Here's something that's very normal for rabbis to do. Get disciples. Because rabbis would have people come around them to spend time with them, to learn from them, how to go and do what the rabbi does. It's not unlike any other apprentice for any other occupation you might find. Tonight I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt and I have a pretty sizable tattoo hanging out of here. Tattoo artists don't just wake up one day and start putting permanent ink on people's skins unless they want to go to jail. Unless this person decides to pay them money and enter into this kind of contract, they need to go through the rhythm of finding another tattoo artist to see them, to observe them, to see how they use their instruments, to see how they keep things sanitary, then to see how they use this ink and that ink and to do this skin. And so what they do is they apprentice over time so then they can go and carry on the work that they learned from the first one. It was normal for rabbis to find these kinds of apprentices to go and carry on their work and spend this time. But what they would usually do is like any other kind of job, they want to field resumes and find the best and brightest. So now, we see these other two words that they call Jesus. Not just rabbi, but Andrew says, we found the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for anointed one. John says that is the Christ, which is the Greek word for anointed one. So sometime in the course of their day with Jesus, they see or understand that there's something bigger and better and more powerful and compelling with this Jesus than any other teacher or rabbi they've seen. They see that he is the anointed king that God had promised. So at this point, they go and get Simon and Jesus looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And then Jesus, watch this, Jesus, he goes and seeks another disciple. So somewhere Jesus is going to go find. What do you see there? Who do they go and find? Philip. So here's what's not normal about this rabbi. He's not just allowing those to come and give their resume to him. He's going to go seek other followers. 
So rather than wait on the best and brightest to come to him, this dude is on the move going and finding other disciples. Here's another thing that's not normal about Jesus. He doesn't go and find the best and brightest we see in the other gospels. He goes and finds tax collectors who everybody hated, who were traitorous and greedy and thieves. Then he goes and finds young people. Some think that the unnamed disciple in the Gospel of John is the writer of John, and he may have been 14 years old. And then we know Simon Peter, he's a fisherman. He's probably significantly older. The ship had sailed for him to go find any other rabbi. He was uneducated. He was working class. He was married, we're going to learn in other Gospels, because Jesus got to heal a mother-in-law. So if you got a mother-in-law, that must mean he was or is married. So this guy is way past his prime. What's not normal for this anointed king is he goes and finds people, number one, and number two, the people he finds are not the people you would entrust your legacy to go and be with and learn from and go and live like. They're going to screw this whole thing up. Are you with me? So this is incredible, Jesus subverting this cultural expectation. So, Jesus finds Philip, and he says to Philip, follow me. So Philip, like Andrew and Peter, they were from the town of Bethsaida. Philip then finds who? Nathaniel. So then he goes and gets Nathaniel. <laughs> so you just see this really wheels off recruitment process where Jesus really doesn't seem to care who's coming along. Oh, but Jesus does care. He knows exactly who he's picking. So then Philip finds Nathanael and he says, We found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. So he's saying the anointed king, the one that the whole scriptures, our whole story, the whole rescue mission points to is this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I love this because this is so real. This shows you the kind of people we're dealing with here. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. I mean, this dude is keeping it real. It's like saying, I don't know, UT? Can anybody good come from the University of North, uh, excuse me, of Texas? I almost said North Texas. That's my alma mater. <laughs> Everyone good comes from the University of North Texas. But I would say to you, can anyone good come from UT? Nathaniel's an Aggie or a Sooner. But what does Philip say to him? Come and see. These people come looking for the anointed one, and the anointed one comes looking for them. They are the left out and the lost and the least. But to those who accept the invitation, they find what John says earlier in his gospel. Life and light and love like no other. But it starts with this invitation that we see throughout this section. And it starts with the word, come. You've got to accept the invitation to see who Jesus is, to see what his love and his life is about. But you have to get into relationship with him. We just prayed for and talked about Austin Street and our calling. And I will never forget something someone we met from our calling said. 
She was a homeless woman that's been in and out of prison. She's had a difficult life. She's always lived in poverty. She's suffered at the hands of abuse. She had every reason in the world to just go and remain lost because she would have probably thought that Jesus had nothing good to say or do with her. But when Jesus sought her, she finally said she got to a point in her life where she realized that nobody was going to have a relationship with Jesus for her. And I never forgot that because she had every reason to say Nazareth or church. Can anything good come from there? Can anything good come from this guy that was around so long ago? He was crucified. They say he was raised from the dead. It all has to start with you coming into relationship and contact with Jesus. And if you would do that, you find that his life and his way is the only way that makes sense and makes us new. So now Jesus, in other gospels, we see that he collects 12 of these uneducated people. And they're highly symbolic because what he's doing is reframing and reshaping the 12 tribes in Israel in the Old Testament who are supposed to be a light to the world. And he says, look, you're going to be my 12 to be salt and light to the world. So he sits down in Matthew 5. Make a note of Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Do you know what's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7? It's the Sermon on the Mount. So now we jump to Matthew's gospel. And Jesus, he's got his band of people who have come. And now it says when Jesus sees these crowds, he goes up on a mountainside and he sat down. Rabbis, when they taught, they didn't get up on a stage with a microphone. They sat down and they explained how to live life in such a way that pleased God. And then look what it says. His disciples came to him. So they're still accepting his invitation to hear from him. And he began to teach them. And here's where we get to the second step in this process. Once you come to Jesus, would you sit down and see him for who he is? That's the invitation words we saw. It's not just that you come to see where he's staying. It's not just that you come to see him heal. But would you come and then see the life that he has to teach us? And the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution for the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest section we have in the Gospel of Matthew that distills what it means to live like Jesus. Martin Luther King Jr. was said to have read the Sermon on the Mount, these chapters, every single day of his life as an adult. And he changed the world. He might have gotten this idea from his mentor, Gandhi, who was also said to have read the Sermon on the Mount every day of his adult life. And Gandhi changed the world. And what's fascinating is that the two started very differently in the process. Because Gandhi was famous for saying, I like their Christ, but I've never really seen a true Christian. It's not the Christians, I'm paraphrasing, I care for so much. But Dr. Martin Luther King came to Jesus and then saw the same teaching, but then what he did was he went and lived it. Look 
at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, when he finishes this incredible constitution for kingdom living, he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and then what? Puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he goes on to say, you can build your whole life on these words, but it's not just enough to listen to them. You've got to put them into practice. So if you jump down to chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Then when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So you know what? If you thought that Andrew and Simon and Philip and Nathaniel were an uneducated, kind of uncouth bunch, wait till you see the crowds that are following behind Jesus, filled with sinners and outcasts, the poor, the sick, and even, in those days, women. No one would have expected women to follow Jesus. But Jesus is letting any and all come and follow him. To come and then to see, but then he says, you've got to also go and live these words of mine, which is the third bit of Jesus's process for discipleship. Now you're going to see Luke chapter 9 up on the screen. Jesus has his 12 disciples and a throng of crowds behind him. And Jesus realizes that at a certain point, he's going to leave and they need to carry on his mission to live like Jesus. So he gives them a practice round. Do you see this in Luke chapter 9 verses 1 to 2? When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority, hold on to that word authority, to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them out to proclaim the what? The kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Everything that Jesus did could be boiled down to teaching and then healing, okay? You could say he's exercising people, you know, exercising demons and kicking it out. But everything he's doing in his teaching and healing is to declare and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Everything that Jesus does in the Gospels is to say that God's kingdom is here and here's what it looks like. And so then, when the disciples have come to Jesus and they've heard him and they've seen him, then he's going to say, now go and manifest that own kingdom in my power and authority. And so that's what they go and do. When I was 13 years old, I got my first electric guitar, and I opened it up on Christmas Day. And for some reason, the thought never crossed my mind that as excited as I was, hoping that I was going to receive a guitar, and as excited as, as I was to open it, it was kind of defeating because the second I held it, I said, I have no idea how to make heads or tails of anything of this. And I looked like a four-year-old just going, gang, 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 gang. And I'd kind of do the knobs. I had no idea what I was doing. And I did that for a week. And I'd plug it in, and we didn't have Google, and I couldn't go look at tabs online. And I was just going, meh, 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 and I couldn't do it. And it was the most defeating thing in the world. And my parents said, I hate this racket. You're going to go get guitar lessons. So imagine if I went and I saw Nick at Brook May's Music in Mesquite. 
And I handed him my guitar, and I said, hey, man, show me how to play. And he shows me, and he does all this wonderful stuff. He shows me scales, and he shows me chords, and I'm just sitting there doing this. Imagine if I had never picked it back up from him. Imagine if I hadn't done the slow and small work of building up calluses and learning chords and learning scales until I could finally step into playing songs when I could string multiple chords together. And then I could take those scales and I could try to replicate everything I heard from Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin at a much slower rate. And I tried to learn solos little by little, but guess what? It took time and it took a relationship. And it took coming to Brook Mays on Wednesdays, seeing, but then actually holding the guitar myself and doing this. And this is what Jesus does. He releases his power. He releases his authority to go and put into practice everything that they've seen and heard. And do you know, in our church, that the reason we do the closed closet. And the reason we go down to Austin Street. And the reason we go to our calling. And the reason, watch... We send you into each other's living rooms on Wednesdays is because you might come and hear the words and life of Jesus in the New Testament and then see what it looks like to love each other, to serve each other, to give sacrificially. But then we say, what does it matter if you're just letting somebody else hold it? Would you put it in your hands and put it into practice? Because the context for the one another's is in the actual relationship around the table with the one another's of this church and our neighborhoods. You can no more love your spouse by listening to a million sermons until you actually go and talk to your spouse and show her or him that love in action. None of the one another's in the New Testament matter one bit if we don't live it and put it into practice. And just like I had to build up the calluses on my fingers and it started with some pretty crummy sounding chords and some pretty crummy sounding scales over time and the more I practiced and the more I was with the instrument, the more I was with the teacher, the more I was able to bleed this stuff out more naturally, the less I had to think about it, the less it hurt over time if you hear what I'm saying. And the more you put yourself into contact with all of Jesus and his people, the more you're able to experience the power and authority of God in your neighborhood and in your relationships around the table. This is why we leverage everything we do in our church around relationships. Because you cannot be a disciple if you are only coming to procure some religious good and service. So when Jesus goes, ultimately, and returns to the Father, he leaves his whole mission, his whole kingdom agenda to these disciples. And we see this in Matthew 28. So now you follow through and see more and more people coming and more and more people going But these disciples are beginning to grow more and more crowds. And just when they think that Jesus is back and raised and this is going to be awesome, he leaves them. And at this point, they're wondering, what on earth are we going to do? But then Jesus says this, all authority. Hey guys, remember when I gave you authority before? When I was with you? Face to face in the flesh? Remember how that went for you? Well, now all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? 
Go and make disciples of who? All nations. Invite everybody else like like Simon and Philip and Nathaniel and Levi and the women and the sick and the poor. Invite all nations to come and then to see my presence and power in life for themselves. And then when they're ready, go and send them to make more disciples. And the entry point is to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you've been to a member orientation that we've done the last several years at the Neighborhood Church, we might do one in a few weeks. If it's your first time signing this partner agreement, we might host a dinner for you in the next few weeks after we finish this service. But in our new member orientation, I showed a picture of a baptistry at a Catholic church right here at the border of Richardson and Garland called St. Joseph's. And it's about this big and it's about this high, and it's a coffin. And it's this infinity pool with water spilling over the side, and if you sit just right, you can see about 100 feet at the front of the sanctuary, you can see in the reflection of that water the crucified Christ on the cross, elevated above it. And it's at the front of the sanctuary, so that when you walk in the sanctuary, you see this coffin, And you remember that the only way to get in to this community, to go sit in the pews, is through the waters of baptism. But if you look closely, you see that reflected in there is a picture of death. And the coffin reminds you that to become a part of the new family is to be buried in death to your old way and to be raised in new life, just like Jesus was, to go and walk into your new family. And so he says, initiate them into the family by baptizing them. If you've not been baptized, would you prayerfully consider these words? Would you prayerfully consider Jesus' example when he himself was baptized? And would you prayerfully wonder, was I baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Is he inviting me to renew my commitment to be with him and follow him through the waters of baptism? We believe that baptism is the entry point into life with God and life with his people. And we believe that we baptize disciples. We believe that Jesus says, if they've come and they've seen Would they be baptized into life with me? And then teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And then he reminds them that even though he goes, he's still with them always to the very end of the age. But it's always this rhythm of coming and seeing and then going again. So Jesus goes and returns to the Father And he's left now his disciples to go and make other disciples. And we're going to conclude our journey of Jesus' process and rhythm of discipleship. And we're going to see a snapshot of the very first church in Acts chapter 2. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit that was promised. And he rails this enormous and beautiful and powerful story and sermon saying that Jesus is the king of the world. And they said, what should we do? We just killed that dude. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And what you see him doing is then inviting more people to come, just like he did, back to Jesus. He says, come, and then you'll receive what? The gift of what? The Holy Spirit. In and through our whole rhythm of discipleship is superintended and grown and guided by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, look, come, 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 and look at verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about what? 3,000 were added to their number that day. And you know what was powerful? There was a festival going on called Pentecost, and people from every nation and tongue, as the writer of Acts tells us, had gathered and heard this message from Peter in their own language. And all of a sudden, struck to the heart, they took the invitation to come to Jesus, and 3,000 people came. And 3,000 people saw the power. And then 3,000 people go into their living rooms because look where they go in verse 42. They. Who is the they? The 3,000 people who are mixing it up with the 12 and the crowds of the women and the sick and the lame and the outcast. And what did all this motley crew do? Read it with me. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They carried on their work and learned the way that they had learned from Jesus. And to fellowship. And to the breaking of bread. And to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Look. Jesus taught. And Jesus healed. And demonstrated and declared the kingdom of God. And then his disciples who had been with Jesus learned from Jesus how to do the same thing. And then what? All the believers were together and they had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anybody who had need. That's why we ask you for so much money. Because there's so much need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. They were being together. They were eating together. They were learning together. They were worshiping together. They were giving together. They were blessing together. And discipleship happens most often around the tables of your living rooms, around this table right here. Do we read the scriptures together? Yes, and you'll have an opportunity to do so in Lent. Like we've done every year, we're going to read the Bible together. We're going to talk about the Bible together. And then we're going to live the Bible together around the table here and the clothes closet there and the homeless and broken on the streets and that you would go and live this life in your workplaces and in the broken relationships within your family and friend networks and you're going to do so in the everyday life of relationships. And you're going to say, I know, would you come with me to Jesus? Would you see the life that he has? And then let's go together to put it into real life. And they were enjoying the favor of all the people. Do you know that they lived so radically this Jesus way that outsiders took notice? And look at the final verse of our chapter here. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. He added to their number daily because they were living in this rhythm 
that Jesus had taught. And so we have this disciple-making process that is not a curriculum for Sunday school. It's a commitment to be in relationship with Jesus and one another. And it looks maybe like this. The come is simply an invitation into life with Jesus. The see is that being with him to learn from him. And then the go is the living like Jesus by declaring and demonstrating the good news of the kingdom. And if we do this right, in the power and mission of the Holy Spirit, the outsiders in our neighborhood come looking and knocking, and we are there with an open hand to say, come, come, this cycle is for you. There are more purple circles on Adam's dry erase board to be added. If you would come, see, and go with us as we grow together in these relationships. So we close with these questions. What's our process of discipleship, and does it work? Well, are we inviting people to come into life with Jesus? And I mean people that aren't in life with Jesus. I said last week, I love that we have other Christians finding a place here that maybe haven't been living with Jesus for many years. But I would so love and feel that 2018 is a time that God has for us to invite new people who are dead, but need to cross over into new life? And then are we baptizing and then teaching people to see Jesus for who he really is, not who they thought he was? And then are we multiplying disciples to go and declare and demonstrate the reign of Jesus? And I'll close by reminding you, our core practice is to commit to invite people into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing, teaching, and sending them on mission. Because that's what Jesus asked his disciples to do because there are so many people in our lives that he is waiting for us to say, would you come and see and then go with me? Let's pray. Lord, in these moments, by your Holy Spirit, those of us in this room who are your disciples, would you bring to mind the faces and names of people who have not yet come to you? Or people who've wandered and are lost and they need to come back to you? Would you bring them to our minds? And Lord, where there is doubt and despair and depression and addiction where there is some obstacle, fear, where there is some trepidation, could we imagine you disintegrating that obstacle? And Lord, could we imagine them running to the cross and they find in your death that they themselves can die to their old way, their old habits, their old hang-ups. And could we imagine them falling at the foot of the cross and seeing their sins and shame melting away? And then Jesus, could we see them walking just over the hill to the empty tomb to see the risen and reigning Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth all authority over sin and drugs and sex 
and all the things that go awry and haywire because we've been looking in all the wrong places. Would we see the power and the victory of the resurrection because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in his followers today. So we want to claim that power in those places of brokenness because you make beautiful things out of brokenness. You knit together new creation where there is only death and dry bones. So we pray for those who've not yet made the journey. And we pray for those who need to make the journey. And we pray for those like us in this room that need reminding of the power that is ours in Jesus. And Lord, we just ask over this church that we would be ready for all nations, all peoples that you would gather, regardless of their background, their bank account, or the brokenness. Would we be a people with our arms outstretched because we learned it from you on the cross and say, whosoever will come, there's a place at the table for you. So Lord, would we be a church ready to make and grow more and more of your apprentices, to be with you, to learn from you, how to live like you because in you is life. And we pray in the name of the Father who adopts us, the Son who guides us, and the Spirit who empowers us. Amen. Receive this blessing to go into the world. May you have the commitment to go into the world being led by the Holy Spirit. Go put into practice the opportunity to make disciples in the home, the school, and the workplace in everyday life, among family, friends, co-workers, and strangers. Go knowing that what you have received from the Holy Spirit is yours, and nothing can separate you from the love of the Master Teacher, Jesus. Go in peace.